everyone. Welcome to another episode of the National Kidney Foundation Life as a Nephrologist podcast. I'm your host, Natasha Dave, a nephrologist from Miami, Florida. And we have a very special and important episode for you today. It's on International Medical Graduates, or IMGs. While IMGs are offered opportunities for training and professional growth that are beyond those available in their countries of origin, they typically encounter barriers to transition from training to practice and early stage career development. We are joined by the authors of an article recently published in the Advances in Chronic Kidney Disease Journal titled International Medical Graduates in Nephrology, a guide for trainees and programs. This is one of many articles in the ACKD's workforce in nephrology issue and will not only be joined by the authors of this paper, but by the guest co-editors of this issue as well. Let's get started with some introductions. Let's start with the authors of this paper, Javier Nera, Clarissa Tio, and Silvia Ferrer. Kindly introduce yourself, Javier. So my name is Javier Neira. I'm a nephrologist. I work at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Uh, I'm originally from Peru, and uh, I, that's why I'm IMG that navigated this system. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thanks so much for being here. Clarissa? Hi, I'm Clarissa. I'm currently a third-year clinical and research fellow in nephrology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital Joint Nephrology Fellowship Program. So I'm from the Philippines, and I'm currently here in the United States on a J-1 visa. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And Sylvia? Hello, everyone. My name is Silvia Ferrer, and I work at the National Kidney Foundation as Director of Operations of the NKF Patient Network. I am originally from Italy, uh, completed my PhD in renal physiology in the Netherlands, and then I continue my training in the U.S. at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Um, I work there um, first as a postdoctoral postdoctoral research fellow, um, and then I transitioned to um, faculty uh, with a position as an assistant instructor. Um, I moved to the United States um, uh, with a J-1 visa for the first two years, and after that, I uh, applied and obtained an H-1B visa. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, We are also joined by the guest co-editors of this issue, Matthew Sparks and Samira Farouk. Matt, will you kindly introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. This is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University, and I'm also the associate program director of the fellowship program. Awesome. Thanks for being here, Matt. And Samira, will you please introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist and associate program director of the fellowship program at Mount Sinai in New York City. Awesome. So welcome, everyone. We've got a full house. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, My first question is for Matt. Um, We were talking earlier, and you mentioned that the original idea for this paper happened over dinner. Tell me a little bit more about how this article came about. Yeah, so this uh, article actually dates back several years, three years, in fact, um, at ASN Kidney Week in New Orleans in 2017, uh, had dinner and uh, with Javier and Clarissa. And we probably talked about an hour to two hours just basically about the struggles of international medical graduates and the lack of resources for them and for program directors. So, um, you know, that sort of stuck with me and was something that I always thought about. And, um, 
you know, uh, when the time came to consider uh, an article that would address this, uh, it was the, the first person on my uh, list to, to do that would be uh, Javier and Clarissa. Well, that's wonderful. Um, so Samira, can you tell me what the overall goal with this issue is and how does this topic fit into it? So the theme of this issue of ACKD, which will be uh, published um, in the next uh, couple of months, is the to cover the many aspects of the workforce in nephrology. And so when Matt and I really thought about what the different articles should be or the different components, we really pictured it as a, a large puzzle piece. And each of the articles would be a different piece that are very important to making sure that the nephrology workforce is complete and effective and providing the best pos possible care um, to patients with kidney disease. And so we felt that this article that addresses uh, the challenges and, and resources necessary for international medical graduates to succeed is really a critical part of that puzzle. And that's why we we decided to dedicate one article um, within this this larger issue. Well, that's great. Let's take um, take a second to review the article. Sylvia, can you give us a broad perspective of the issues that the nephrology workforce in the United States faces when it comes to international medical graduates or IMGs? I just wanted to pause there for a second, and maybe Sylvia, you can address this. I know that there are some different definitions for what IMG means. Would you be able to tell us kind of what the different interpretations are and what we're really talking about in this paper? In the paper that expired, that inspired this podcast, um, we call IMGs all trainees who are in the United States on a visa. Uh, however, in some instances, uh, the term ING can also include um, U.S. citizens who studied abroad or at the Caribbean's. Um, so, Clarissa, I'm curious to get your perspective as a trainee. What are some common misconceptions about IMG trainees on visas that you think your non-IMG peers have? Yeah, so there are a couple of misconceptions. Um, the first one is that we all have the same training opportunities. So it is generally more difficult to match to a U.S. residency program as a non-citizen international medical graduate compared to our American citizen and or American medical graduate counterparts. So this difficulty generally extends to fellowship matches as well. The second misconception is that we all have the same research opportunities. So for IMGs on visas who are interested in an academic research career, getting the necessary research training and protected research time can be challenging. This is because non-citizens are not supported by the NIH T32 grant. And so any salary support or protected research year must come from division funds or external grants. The third misconception is that we all have the same post-training employment opportunities. So for physicians who are on visas during training, they must find employers who can sponsor employment visas. Specifically for those on the J-1 visa on their training period, they must their future employer in the United States must qualify as a Conrad 30 spot or its equivalent. So usually these practices or institutions are located in underserved areas in the United States. And also once you're in a Conrad waiver spot, you have to complete that employment for a minimum of three years. And while we are on the topic of employment, trainees on J-1 visas could not moonlight. And I'm just saying this because this is in the setting of significant annual fees necessary to maintain our legal status here in the United States. So fees are a couple of hundred dollars each year. And this does not include visa renewal fees that we have to pay when we reapply for our visas in U.S. embassies and immigration lawyer fees um, when we need a consultation. 
So the fourth misconception is that someone on a J-1 visa can automatically get U.S. citizenship after marrying an American. So Clarissa, I'm going to um, interrupt you for a second. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the different types of visas and what implications they have in the, the training process and post-training? Sure. Um, so generally, there are two types of visas that trainees can be on um, training here in the United States. So one is a J-1 visa and one is the H-1B visa. So the J-1 visa is an exchange visitor visa. Um, the usual duration of the training period should max at seven years. And the caveat to a J-1 exchange visitor program is that after you train, you have to go back to your home country and serve there for two years before you can come back to the United States to work. Um, There are opportunities to waive these requirements, and these would include working in underserved areas or getting a specific waiver for it. Um, The other visa is called the H-1B visa. It's another employment type visa. The usual maximum duration is six years. And one a uh, positive thing about the H-1B visa is that um, you can continue on with employment um, after training with it. It does not have that uh, required return to home country service that's required of a J-1 visa. And then how does that Conrad waiver that you mentioned, how does that fit into that? For many of the listeners and including myself, some of this is kind of new information and can be a bit confusing. Yeah. Um, So thanks for asking that. So the Conrad waiver, um, so it's called a Conrad 30 because each state has 30 spots for it. Um, Basically, there are certain zip codes or certain locations in every state um, that is an underserved area. So this is um, a method for trainees on the J-1 visa to waive that return to home country requirement is that they can choose to work in these underserved areas, which are called Conrad 30 waiver spots, uh, and they have to work there for three years at the very minimum in order to um, get an H-1B visa and proceed on to getting a green card later on if they so wish. Awesome. Thanks for the clarification. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience? Have you encountered any of the issues that you mentioned um, before and how have you navigated this? Um, So for me, I think what I can talk about is how I navigated trying to pursue a research training as a fellow. So as I mentioned earlier, um, it is more difficult for a a trainee on a visa to get into a research fellowship, Uh, but it is not impossible. So at least for nephrology, there are a lot of programs out there that do commit divisional support to aspiring non-citizen physician scientists. So this will be contingent on a lot of things. One would be on the IMG's interest and track record. Second, the culture of the program and if division funds exist to support uh, IMGs or if the IMG can secure a grant, uh, external grant funding. And the third is the field or subspecialty that one is applying to. So in some programs, the research here can be supported regardless of grant funding status. In some programs, you have to get a grant in order to support your research here. So it just really depends. So in my case, when I was applying for fellowship, I was very fortunate enough to interview a lot of places. And because of that, I knew I had a better idea of what uh, options exist out there for me. Ultimately, I matched to my current program um, at Brigham and MGH, where if you matched as a visa holder, you are guaranteed a third year where you do your research. And regardless of getting a grant or not, um, Uh, So in my case, um, I was able to navigate um, my uh, goal to get into a research fellowship program. 
being a visa holder, um, I was able to apply for uh, foundational grants. And uh, luckily, I was able to secure the American Kidney Fund grant, um, which I'm very grateful for because it really gives me the opportunity to complete the third and fourth years of my research, uh, funding not only my salary support, but also um, partial tuition for my master's education. So that is one of the misconceptions that I mentioned earlier that I was able to navigate through. Awesome. And can you tell me what advice you have for IMG residents who are about to apply for fellowship? Uh, yeah. So the first is you have to do your research very well. You have to talk to current fellows who are in various programs um, that you're interviewing it. Uh, you're interviewing too, and you have to talk to fellows who are in the same visa boat as you are to get advice from them on how they navigated their specific situations. Um, second, go to a program that has experience in taking in fellows on visas and in launching their careers after their fellowship training, because you you do not want, um, because not only do you want um, colleagues and faculty who can empathize with you, but you also want those who are able to give you advice on how to navigate these specific situations. And finally, I think the most important advice would be go to a program whose leadership asks you what your goals are at are after fellowship, whose leadership is interested in knowing what steps you want to take in order to achieve these goals, and whose leadership is willing to help you reach those goals. Because, you know, we all have different career plans. Like, for example, if you want to go to private practice and have a career in private practice, go to a program whose leadership is able to help you secure that Conrad Waiver private practice job after your fellowship training. If you want to be a researcher, a physician scientist, go to a program that will give you that third year research support regardless of getting external grant funding and whose leadership is interested in what you want to achieve beyond that third year of research. If you want to return to your home country after your training, you have to go to a program that will give you the specific skills and specialized training that you would need in order to become an established physician in your home country. Because ultimately, and this advice goes to anyone who's applying for a fellowship spot, you would want to be in a program who's not just interested in you in the next two to three years, but who is invested in your career five or 10 years after that. Thanks, uh, Clarissa, for sharing that. Um, so I just wanted to come back to the paper a bit. Javier, can you highlight some aspects of this paper that you think um, would be helpful for trainees and faculty to as they're preparing for this transition from trainee to faculty? Yeah, absolutely. I think like uh, I'm very happy that uh, from this conversation that Matt referred to, uh, we end having a product that uh, we think... Uh, First of all, uh, raise awareness about what uh, IMGs in nephrology navigate uh, to pursue their career after fellowship. Uh, number two, uh, we try to summarize some of the common visas that trainees uh, hold during this process. As Clarissa mentioned, typically it's the J-1 visa or the H-1B visa. Those are the two most common visas and importantly, we try to emphasize what are the next steps on each of these visas to pursue after training. And this is independent of your career path, if it's academia or if it's uh, you want to go to private practice. Uh, importantly, I think we also uh, generate a very a brief general timeline of how you should anticipate certain milestone steps to be taken care of 
ahead of the transition because unfortunately this process can be tedious and there are some deadlines that are very hard stops and you need to fulfill and accommodate. So at least for a trainee to have an idea of how, when should I expect to start working on these items. And finally, uh, we also want to give a positive message uh, to the trainees that uh, we are a very uh, important uh, uh, part of the scientific uh, nephrology community and uh, that there is a lot of people at different levels uh, of uh, training and also at different levels of uh, post-training uh, life that have uh, navigated this process. So there is definitely uh, a lot of people to uh, uh, reach for advice, and uh, there is people that understand very well these processes, and a lot of them are dedicated uh, to educate our fellows. So um, we just want to wanna tell the trainees that uh, there, are, there are ways to deal with this. And um, despite of the constraints, uh, there are always many, many alternatives to uh, sat uh, satisfactorily uh, achieve the goals. Awesome. Thanks for that answer, Javier. Uh, Sylvia, I want to take it back to you. Earlier, Clarissa mentioned that you um, had an H-1B visa. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Yeah, I think I'd like to start from uh, when I first moved to the United States. So I came here to do my postdoctoral research training, as I mentioned earlier. And at that time, um, I joined UT Southwestern with a J-1 visa. And so under that visa, I was able to apply and eventually obtain a ASN Ben J. Leaps Research Fellowship. Uh, that would cover basically the first two years of my research uh, while I was in the United States. And um, towards the end of the first year in that fellowship, I started thinking about the future and what would have been next. Um, and so I was considering, um, based on my research interest, um, other uh, fellowships, in particular an AHA research fellowship. And one of the requirements to uh, get that fellowship was to have an H-1B visa by the time um, the research project would start. So I decided to uh, apply in time, on time for an H-1B visa, uh, which uh, at that time, it was 2014, I obtained pretty quickly, I think, um, uh, from six to nine months. And so um, that allowed me to apply to the AHA fellowship and other fellowships from professional organizations. Um, and basically that really uh, helped support my, my research um, um, for the following years. Awesome. I have a, a question, uh, Javier. So to me, it, it appears that an H-1B visa is preferred over a J-1. Why is a J-1 used so commonly in the United States in medical training? Uh, and is there any way to get around that? That's a very good question. Uh, so what, what happened is typically the H-1B, uh, the, the program need to sponsor directly the individual. So it's a process that it's a little bit more, it has a little bit more specific steps to accommodate the particular individual needs. So a program needs to really invest in an individual basis on those uh, uh, people. Now, uh, for when you start your training, you're starting internal medicine and typically it's very competitive 
and uh, the programs will uh, very likely sponsor J1B, B, J, J1 visas for uh, the international medical graduates. So uh, this is a little bit uh, less, uh, there are less steps ahead and uh, is less individualized compared to an H1B. So most of the programs will prefer to sponsor J, J1 visas for individuals that come to train in the U.S., uh, especially for internal medicine. Now, when you have a J-1 visa, uh, you just need to state the reminding of your training on J-1 visa. You, it's very difficult to transition to another type of visa when you go for fellowship. Now, if you ask me, of course, I don't have the, uh, the answer why the system sponsors one visa over the other, but I can say that uh, sponsoring an H-1B visa, it's, uh, it has more specific individualized steps that probably programs cannot afford uh, to do on an individual basis for all their trainees that are coming from uh, abroad. So I think that's one of the issues I see is that for whatever reason, um, internal medicine programs are getting individuals on the J-1 visa, which really handicaps them later on in their career. But I think in a subspecialty like nephrology, which is fairly small, it's completely feasible to do H-1B visas. However, they're handicapped because they are already placed on J-1 visa by the internal medicine program um, that came before. And so I think it's, uh, to me, that it's a, uh, you know, it's a struggle that our, our system works like that. I agree. It's a struggle and definitely uh, it affects uh, the continuation of the trainees, particularly if they want to stay in, academ in academic medicine. Uh, having a J-1 visa and then try to stay in academic medicine is very challenging if you are on an H-1B visa and you want to stay in academia, your program can sponsor your transition to a green card and uh, you can remain at your, at your same institution uh, if you have, let's say, a continuation of your research already outlined. Uh, the other important aspect that I want to clarify that is that um, uh, sometimes there is this misconception that the H-1B visa if you come to train through internal medicine with an H-1B visa, it's going to be very challenging for the trainee to find a fellowship spot for the same particular reason that the H-1B requires more steps for sponsoring. And that's not, that's not true. Uh, the, uh, despite there are more steps, uh, pro, uh, fellowships like nephrology uh, will be very happy to sponsor H-1B visas uh, for trainees on, on this type of uh, immigration status. Uh, so like uh, when I was applying, I remember for internal medicine, there are still there were still some programs in the country that can sponsor an H-1B visa for trainees. But there was this uh, uh, misconception that, oh, if you come in on H-1B visa, then it's going to be very tough for you to get into a fellowship. And uh, certainly that's not true and does not does not apply at uh, these days, specifically for nephrology in which uh, we have uh, a reduced number of applicants. So maybe this is a naive question, but when you're applying for internal medicine residency, what role do you have in, in which visa you are, are sponsored on? Or do you have a, do you have a chance to, to make a case for why you should get the H1 visa because you really want to be a physician scientist or, or is it like a lottery well, that, that, I, I, I love that question, you know, because uh, really you can have control. Uh, the, uh, I have, I have uh, 
known some people that uh, they negotiated their H1B visa when they they came for, to do internal medicine, and uh, they were able to do it. Uh, if the program, if a program really likes you, uh, they will be able to navigate the process because, as I said. When you come to this country to train uh, on an H-1B versus a J-1, you don't need to be in, a, in any restricted area of practice or nothing like that. So any hospital can sponsor an H-1B visa to an individual that want to train. Of course, they need to know the process and they need to have the resources to do it. Uh, so a trainee can easily negotiate that if they have a vision of how they wanna, what, to want, what they want to do after training. Uh, but uh, a lot of the times uh, the trainees are not aware of this ability to negotiate their visa, number one. And number two, sometimes they have the misconception that because everybody comes on a J-1, the J-1 opens other type of opportunities for postgraduate training when certainly that's not the case. So it seems like we need to get this paper into the just general medical population, not just nephrologists. <laughs> Yeah, I think that the, the decisions that are cast early on in training have a lot of repercussions later on. And I think that it, it would be very uh, advantageous if the medical community would understand that. I think that would be a huge uh, change in how we look at IMGs in this country. And it's something that applicants should uh, know too, because they need to plan ahead. So for example, in order to qualify for an H-1B visa, you should have taken all steps one to three, whereas to get a J-1 visa, you don't need to have a step three score. So perhaps if you really want to be on an H-1B visa, you line up all your ducks and take all your steps before you apply for that residency spot. Yeah, that, that's a very important clarification, uh, Clarissa. Uh, thanks for doing that. The, the 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 only way you can negotiate your H-1B visa is if you have all your steps uh, uh, taken. And uh, as you know, you don't need the step three to to come and train on a J-1, but you will need it for an H-1B. Um, that's that that will be something to keep in mind. So when you got the invitation to write this, both of you uh, or all three of you, sorry, what was the one thing you were just so excited about putting in this paper? that you're like, I, I cannot wait to write this because I want to add this. I would say I, I'm very excited that we are talking about this, right? Uh, this is uh, 2020 and uh, several years ago when I, I came to this country to train, this was not a topic on the table. Uh, just the fact that we have a separate issue on an important journal that like ACKD and uh, have this uh, outline of topics, it's, uh, it's, it's some improvement in our scientific community about talking uh, sensitive items that can enhance our workforce. So uh, uh, my, my biggest uh, interest, and uh, I was uh, happy to recruit Clarissa and Sylvia to uh, uh, join this effort, was just to communicate uh, some uh, information about uh, the process uh, and uh, most importantly because uh, you can have a consultation with a high quality lawyer that will navigate these steps one by one with you uh, it's to um, uh, convey the message that our our community cares about IMGs uh, that we are really paying attention uh, to what happened to you and that people that has uh, navigated this process is not uh, looking to the other way and is not forgetting all the uh, all the steps they needed to uh, to, to to pass through uh, to, to get to the point they are so we we are a community that uh, have the ability to learn 
and uh, through learning, uh, help each other to make things easier, to make things a little bit more uh, feasible for uh, our peers that ca are coming behind us. And to me, that was the most exciting part, like uh, just to uh, convey uh, not only information, but the positive message that we can do it and also we can do it better. And uh, just the fact that we are dedicating some time to discuss this article, uh, just uh, it's uh, is the is the product of that this is an important topic for us. And just to add some add some numbers to that, I don't think we've mentioned yet on this podcast, but you know the 2019 ASN Fellows Survey of 500 or so fellows found that almost 65 percent were international medical graduates, and so. Um, just kind of more evidence to why this is such an important topic to discuss and it affects so many of our trainees and, and you know, as being an uh, associate program director of a fellowship program, we really need to be kind of well-versed in, in the language and the, the kind of what goes into this process so we can best be able to support um, trainees that come in both during their fellowship training and, and beyond. Um, Clarissa and Sylvia, do you have other thoughts that you wanted to add to kind of answer Matt's question about what you really wanted to write in the paper? Yeah, for me, um, it was very important in, in, um, to, to join the team, the, the writing group for this paper, because I felt like I, I've learned um, something from my experience uh, as a researcher in the United States. And uh, I was very uh, much looking forward to share some of um, the things I've learned during the process of applying for uh, fellowships that would allow me to to do the research I wanted and and be able to build a career in this country. So for me, it was very important to work on an uh, overview of the grants and fellowships that are available out there for uh, IMGs. And that's a great table. So check out the table with all the grants. Uh, <laughs> it is, I think it encompasses more than a page. You know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes uh, I, I, I felt like I was reinventing the wheel and uh, honestly, the information was out there. I uh, needed to do some research as uh, as a fellow, and uh, I found out different grant opportunities. And I familiarized with uh, deadlines and eligibility criteria. So I think that is very important. It's a, that's definitely something I would advise uh, to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's very useful. Thanks for doing that. And. If you don't apply for the grant, you're never going to get it. Yeah, I just want to echo what Sylvia said. Like, I'm excited about two things about this paper. The first is that big table of all the foundational grants that support um, uh, IMGs on visas. Uh, because, you know, I feel like all the information that we have status quo is all by word of mouth. Like, oh, what grants can I apply to? Oh, what do I do next? I feel like our paper, our goal is to lay it out there, like the steps, the plans that you have to think about, because we don't want this to be a black box type of, of process that people just navigate blindly or by just getting information from word of mouth. For a process that's that has to be undergone by so many people, we feel that we have to put it on paper so that everyone can read it, have a guide, equalize the playing field, and open up the opportunities for everyone. 
That, I think that's a great point. And we're actually planning to feature all of these articles on Renal Fellow Network, which we really see as a, as a resource to be used by all trainees. And, you know, as you said, provide the same opportunities and resources to everyone. And so we already have on Renal Fellow Network a list of grants and opportunities for individuals to apply for. We try to share eligibility information when we have it. So I think this will be a really nice um, addition to that, um, especially since all three of you have pointed out the importance of you know, finding and securing um, additional funding opportunities to kind of pursue your passions. And so I think, you know, this will be a really important resource for IMGs that are looking to kind of emulate your paths. And something I want to add to that is that the the funding opportunities are there. And uh, thank you, Sylvia, for uh, drafting that table that uh, it's uh, it gives a lot of hope because it, it looks big and uh, it looks like uh, there are a lot of chances. Uh, and uh, I, I do agree with that. But something that in addition to that is the support from your leadership in your program. Uh, because I remember when I was applying to some of these grants and uh, the timeline, as we discussed in this paper uh, of applying for your waiver, your transition after trainee to, uh, to faculty or to private practice, uh, is, uh, is very tight. And uh, sometimes these deadlines for the grants overlap. And also, uh, you, if you're waiting for this uh, grant to be funded, uh, you may miss your opportunity to apply for the waiver. So in, in my experience, uh, when I went to my program, uh, to my, the chief of the division, and I said, I want to apply for this grant because I, I think I have a good idea and I found the right mentorship to do it. And uh, I told him, but there is a there is a there is a problem. If I apply if I apply for this grant, I won't be able to apply for the waiver because uh, I don't know the results of the grant, and my waiver opportunity will be already gone. And uh, and 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 my chief understood, and uh, he said, like, listen, if you if you believe in this. Uh, just apply, and uh, if you don't get it, uh, you, we don't want you to be off uh, just uh, without a job. So we will support one extra year of research for you from the division money. Uh, so uh, th- those are the things that are very important, right? I have never applied in a, to a grant in my life at that time. Uh, I, I knew, I was told that uh, it was very tough. Uh, then I experienced myself during life that is very tough and uh, the chances are very uh, low to get funded uh, every time you apply. But uh, that reassurance uh, was very important, right? That somebody has your back and uh, listen, uh, go for it. And uh, if we don't, if you don't get it, uh, then uh, we will keep you. Su- we will keep supporting you uh, for you to find a job uh, the following year. And uh, I was one of the fortunate people to get it, but uh, I fe- I felt very, very uh, supported during that period of time to do it. So in addition to the, the information of which grants are available, it's very important that the leadership of nephrology support these candidates. And, um, and just, uh, you never know. I mean, you may uh, uncover somebody that uh, find their passion to do something and... Uh, and then can uh, give back to the field. So uh, I think everybody deserves a shot and, uh, and we should invest in people's careers. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that you highlighted the importance of mentorship. I think mentorship is important for all types of trainees. And I think mentorship needs to be individualized and personalized. And, you know, IMG status is, is just one of the many things that 
mentors can use to personalize their mentorship to try to get that training on on the right track. And, um, you know, I think I've been fortunate like you to have strong mentors in my corner um, advocating for me. And I think that also needs to be done for for this group of um, trainees to help ensure their success. Absolutely. And Javier, to um, echo what you were saying about support, um, what can we do as nephrologists, both IMG and non-IMG, as well as uh, what can nephrology societies do to help support our international medical graduate colleagues? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to we need to keep uh, this effort of uh, conveying information. Uh, I think this was a great initiative, and I want to congratulate uh, Samir and Matt and the leadership of ACKD to take the this uh, challenge of developing this issue, and uh, and uh, that I think is very unique uh, for uh, for nephrology. Um, at the same time, I think we need to uh, be vigilant, uh, vigilant and keep a track on our IMGs, right? So we know uh, through the fellow survey that one out of four trainees are IMGs. Uh, we know that uh, these people uh, require some gui- need some guidance uh, to transition their um, trainee to a faculty or practitioner uh, status. Uh, so we need to also be sure that uh, the leadership of our programs uh, represents our community, right? So that uh, we have uh, uh, adequate uh, representation of IMGs in leadership positions that can support uh, our workforce. Uh, and uh, and I think like uh, it's very important, if not part of the leadership, like the Nefroy Fellowship programs have some faculty advisor that has been an IMG to kind of help uh, the, the leadership to, te- to make decisions that can impact uh, positively uh, trainees. So, and, uh, and it's a globalized world, right? So we can always talk, we can always develop a workforce through the uh, professional societies that can address these topics, can provide some consultation, can provide some suggestions, and we do it a lot in the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of ASN. We do it in NKF. So I think there are opportunities. Uh, I think uh, the future is bright because we are talking about this. Uh, I, I just uh, I feel that uh, we are on the right path to generate better channels of communication, uh, more information, and also to give these trainees a little bit of hope. Uh, that's very important. So you guys uh, can do it. Absolutely. Sylvia, Clarissa, anything to add to that? I was going to say a few, th- just one thing. So, you know, I first congratulate um, all of you on a really well-written paper. I think uh, I would love to see this if I'm ever able to travel again, uh, right on the desk of every program director and division chief in the country and uh, read this, be able to understand the different visas and the challenges uh, for our societies to invest in research training grants um, and realize how important this uh, group of physicians is to our specialty and to taking care of patients with kidney disease. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know on Twitter at NKF. And if you're interested in getting in touch with us, please email us at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. And let us know your thoughts on this episode. And if you have any ideas for future ones, 
Um, just want to take a second to thank everyone for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Um, and until next time, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.